So, you're apologizing? Yes. I'm sorry. Okay. I don't forgive you. Herb, I said I'm sorry. Yeah. And I do not forgive you. Uh, not sure you get what's happening here. This could be the last time that no, you... No. I'm not gonna give you closure. You don't get that. <clears throat> you have to live with the shitty thing you did for the rest of your life. You have to know that it's never, ever going to be okay. Welcome to Welcome to Storybrooke. I'm Max. And I'm Tina. And we're finally at Baby Death Pit. I know. We finally get to the part where David and Mary Margaret fucking straight up kill Maleficent's daughter. And, okay, we'll get into it. Believe me, we will get into it. But I just need to say, they straight up kill Maleficent's daughter and then act surprised like, they're all like, oh, we had no idea this egg was her child. We had no idea that there was a baby inside this egg that this woman who can turn into a dragon laid. She's a woman who can turn into a dragon. I mean, wouldn't you rather just lay an egg and then not have to deal with being pregnant? Yeah. Yeah, I would way rather lay an egg and not have to deal with being pregnant. Anyway. I I just, I mean, I don't, I don't know how it's going to go down. Uh, listeners, because we're not there yet, but we may end up breaking the scene down line by line because I have a lot to say. Anyway, we're season four, episode 17, Best Laid Plans, or... Book six, Cheaper by the Coven. Chapter. Do we do that? We do do that. I usually do that, but I threw it to you because I don't know what chapter we're on. Chapter something. All right. So the recap reminds us of the fact that According to Mary Margaret, because of her and David, Maleficent lost her child, which is, I know I brought this up before, it's such passive language. Oh my god. Because of us, she lost her child. Because of that thing we did when we killed her child. Oh my god. We open in a fairy tale flashback with David and Mary Margaret. It's back after the wedding, but before they knew all the details of the dark curse, just when they knew that Regina was planning something super bad. Maleficent told them the dark curse was coming, but they don't know if they can believe her. Also, Snow is pregnant, but she's not showing yet. But that is the height of her concern. She's way more concerned about that than the fact that Regina is planning something that will decimate her entire community. So, you know. Although. Great leadership, Snow. Technically, all she said is that, uh. She was planning something that would destroy her happiness. And as we know, Snow doesn't give a shit about running a kingdom. She just doesn't want someone else to do it. That's super accurate. That's all Regina said. The trio did tell them that it was going to destroy everyone's happiness. You know, Regina could have really easily destroyed Snow's happiness by just setting up a democracy. Regina could have easily destroyed Snow's happiness by making her lead the fucking country. That's true. Snow was mayor for, what, a week before giving up? Yeah. Anyway, Snow and David are hunting a unicorn, but not in a murdery way, in a gropey way. Yeah, they found out that apparently if they touch the unicorn's horn, they'll have information about their child. They'll be able to see the future briefly. So right now they're concerned because they've just learned that 
because their child is the product of true love, it has the capability of either great good or great evil. Otherwise known as all children everywhere, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing about children. They could go at, uh, they could do anything but within if- reason. Although this child has more uh, ability to do anything because of the uh, privilege it's going to be born into. Also, it's going to have magical powers, but... Anyway, when they touch the unicorn's horn, they get a vision of the future. Yeah, this unicorn does not freak out around them, despite neither one of them being virgins, so I guess the rules are different. Well, maybe because they're pure? Mm-hmm. They're pure of heart, Max, because they're the heroes. Oh, uh, So, Mary Margaret and David both touch its horn with their gloved hands, which, again, I feel like this should be a skin to horn contact thing but maybe whatever. the gloves are magic capacitive so both david and mary margaret have visions david's vision is of holding a baby and he's like yay everything's fine this baby is clearly not evil i can tell by the way it's not trying to kill me i mean it d- is a very cute baby. it is a cute baby but david you can't tell if it's evil it's just a baby it's uh, david's such an idiot and he turns to Snow and he's like, Snow, everything's going to be all right. But Snow's still having her vision. Yeah, in Snow's vision, we see Teen Emma. Hey, Teen Emma, wearing a hot pink dress, which, that's a choice. I doubt it's a choice she made. I mean, based... Oh, oh, wow. I just realized something. Mm-hmm. In a later season, we're going to get to see what Emma would have been like if she hadn't gone through the wardrobe into the world without magic. And she was super uncool. And that's exactly the kind of dress that that uncool Emma would have chosen to wear. Yeah, it's very... It's a Party City Sleeping Beauty dress is what it is. Yeah. And not even a cool Party City Sleeping Beauty dress that's blue the way Aurora's dress actually is, but like a pink Party City Sleeping Beauty dress that's pink as she was recolored for the Disney Princess line. And you know what? Pink is fine. I love pink. I'm literally wearing pink right now, but that dress is really ugly. Yes. Yes. It's... You know what she is? She is, if you were creating a standard female character for a setting. For a medieval setting. I'm just saying any setting, period. Well, I mean, mean, it is a princess dress. Yeah. But, like, it's a little princess peachy. I mean, I guess it's not that makes it sound way cooler than it is. Yeah. But... But we're burying the lead here, which is that Teen Emma reaches into Snow's chest, rips out her heart, and then crushes it. Okay, I really like this because Snow, upon seeing her daughter, she's like, oh, look at you, you are good. And Teen Emma's like, lol, nope. Uh, Can we talk? I mean, not. can we point out here that Snow just assumes she's good because she's beautiful and blonde and wearing pink? Also, why is Emma blonde? Oh, that's, that's its own issue. Snow and David are both brunette. Actually, I mean, David's hair is light. Light, but it's not blonde. Like, it's it's light brown, but it's still brown. But it's light enough brown that I bet he was a blonde child. Yeah, but I mean, I was a blonde child. And look at what color my hair is now. What's that thing called? Punnett Square. Yeah. We need to do one of those for Emma. Yeah, we do. When, uh, when she rips out Snow's heart, and Emma says, I don't care, she crushes the heart, which I bring up because we're going to see that again later in this episode. Sadly, not Snow getting her heart ripped out. Metaphorically getting her heart ripped out. 
So David's like, come on, Snow. I saw a vision of our kid as a baby. Everything's going to be fine. And Snow turns to him and she's like, no, babies grow up. And from there we go to the title card. Yep, it's a unicorn running through the woods, which I think we've got before, but I'm not 100% sure. I think we have too. But at this point, these title cards are like, but at this point, these title cards are less like the Battlestar Galactica 60 second blip at the beginning of the episode and more like the Simpsons couch gag so I guess it's to be expected that they would reuse some Mm. I used to always get thrown off because I remember watching Simpsons when you didn't know what uh, episode you were going to get you just turned on the TV and whatever they showed you they showed you you got what you got and you don't complain yes you get what you get and you don't get upset Thank you. That was the phrase I was going for. But I remember always being mad when they used the uh, circus opening because that's the long one that they use whenever an episode's running short. Yeah. So it could be with some openings you knew specifically what episode you were going to get just based off of what the couch gag was. But it could be anything if it was the long couch gag. Well, not anything. Yeah, but a lot more things. True. So we cut to Emma and Regina who are looking at the book. Uh, with Henry trying to figure out how to get the author out. They're in the room with August and the Blue Fairy. August is in the best state you can be in if you're around the Blue Fairy, which Un- is... Unconscious? Unconscious and dying. He do- he does not want to be around the Blue Fairy so much, he is dying to get out of there. Literally. Wow. Wow. You know what? I just realized, is August conscious at all this episode, or is he unconscious the entire episode? Uh, he wakes up for exposition near the end. Oh, right. Right. A the lot un- of stuff happens. A, a lot of stuff happens in this episode. Yeah, that's true. Although I was just thinking about how unlikely August's exposition is, but I guess we'll talk about that at the end of the episode. Anyway, Mar- uh, anyway, Emma and Regina are, as you said, examining the book page, which is the actual door. The page is the door. And they're trying to figure out how to get out. I love Regina's suggestion that they draw a key. I mean, it's clearly sarcastic, but she's like, what, do we just draw a key? I mean, yeah, that would be the obvious solution, right? But the Blue Fairy interrupts this to say, hey, you know that uh, kid who I turned from a puppet into a kid and cursed to die if he lied or was cowardly or whatever? Yeah, his ass is definitely super doomed. Turns out that when you use magic on someone, if if you transform someone who's been transformed over and over and over again, eventually their animus gets super weak and August is going to need a real strength of will to not die. Whatever, it's magic. Yeah. Anyway, Regina realizes that she needs to get back to the trio. I'm still calling them the trio, even though Ursula's gone, but now I'm just, like, subsuming Rumple into the trio. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, Regina needs to get back to the... Tr- Rumple's Warren in this analogy. So now they all have to switch up who they are. So now Rumple is Warren, Maleficent is... Jonathan. Jonathan, and... Krella's Andrew. Yeah, that's what I'm gonna go with. Yeah. Anyway, Regina realizes she needs to get back to the trio, and she needs to bring them the page, or else they're gonna realize something is up. Which... Again, I won't hammer on this too long because, I mean, it's once upon a time, but 
She's the mayor. Just kick them out of town. What are they even doing? Well, it's much harder now that they've got Rumple And Maleficent. Yeah. I guess. Anyway, I guess she, so she still wants them to think she's on their side and not have all-out war, I guess. So her mission was to get the picture of the door and bring it to Rumple and uh, Corella and Maleficent. But they can't let them have that picture because the picture is the door. Emma instantly just uses magic to create a fake page, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, I I sort of didn't remember her using that magic, her magic all that often after a certain point, but she's actually getting pretty good at it. And she does it so expertly and casually. It's very cool. I'm. It made me very excited. But Regina points out that it's... A good forgery, but it's not good enough to fool Rumpelstiltskin, like, king of magic deception. So Regina takes out her Blackberry and snaps a picture of the page, which... It's really smart of her. And it's super cool to me that Emma comes up with the magical solution and Regina comes up with the modern tech solution. There is a tiny plot hole here, which we will talk about when we get to it. Okay. Because Regina specifically takes a picture of the copy that Emma made. You pointed out that Regina's taking a picture of the page that Emma created, not the actual page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. That's going to make a plot hole. But we'll get to that. Okay. So, uh, Regina says this will work because they think this is an actual door that's somewhere around town. So they'll just go around town looking for this door. They won't think that the actual page is the door. Uh, Henry takes the fake page and just slips it into the book, by the way. Which. Well, that might come back later, too. This episode actually has a bunch of really well-seeded uh, plot elements to it. Yeah, although it also seeds that massive plot hole. But mm. that's okay. That's okay. Anyway, back at the Charming Loft, Hook is there to tell Emma what he learned from Ursula last week, which is that Rumple is after her sweet, sweet savior dark center. Yeah, he thinks that if he corrupts her to evilness, then it'll allow evil people to get their happy endings because the savior is the person who brings happy endings, which, I mean, it tracks logically, I guess. In a... Although we're going to find out next week that it's a little more concrete than just making Emma be evil. It's a lot more complicated than that, too. It's What? Something in Once Upon a Time is more complicated than originally presented. But Emma blows it off. Emma's like, whatever. I'm not going to be evil. Evil's for dumb people who do dumb things. And Mary Margaret and David are like, oh, shit. Which, yeah. They shouldn't be worried about that because of what they did this episode. Okay. David and Mary Margaret are worried. And I think the reason they're worried, I mean in addition to their daughter might turn evil, is the fact that they have a fundamental misunderstanding, as we will see in this episode, of what is and is not evil. I mean, we'll cover it in more depth, but they keep acting like the bad thing they did is lying to cover up what they did, like it's the cover-up, not the crime. No, David and Mary Margaret, in your case, it is absolutely the crime, not the cover-up that we're upset about. David pulls Mary Margaret to the side because he sees that she's freaking out and he's like, you don't have to worry. Remember, because of the whole baby death pit thing, we don't have to worry about Emma being evil. And Snow says, but 
What about the author? He has the power to change the story. Uh, after all, he's going to write the villain's happy endings, which is assuming a lot, because... Right? Okay, you don't even know who the author is yet, or what the author is. Also, you're assuming that the stuff written in the book is what caused that stuff to happen, which, true, but that's a huge leap in logic. Oh, see... Also, you're assuming that they're going to find the... Oh, so you do it. Oh, no, uh, my my thing was actually different. My thing was like, okay, so uh, assuming, which they are correctly, that the author is this omnipotent godlike being who has the ability to change their stories... Why do you think he's going to help out the villains when he already cast you in the protagonist role? Like, they're worried because they're like, oh no, he's going to give the villains happy endings. He's the one who made them villains in the first place. Like, clearly he has some investment in you guys being the heroes and winning. Yeah. So. Anyway. Although, I want to like the author more than I do because... He shares our love of Regina. He does, and he... The things they have him say, he does have a good grasp on how stories should work. It's just he's a terrible author. Uh, You know what? Saving it. Saving it for when we have to deal with him later. Yeah, when we get to the Long Live Regina episode, I'll talk in depth about why the author is a terrible, terrible writer, but... He does understand what makes stories work. And he's right. The Baby Death Pit is a better story. But he's wrong in that he doesn't understand. I mean, assuming that... Oh, you know what? We'll talk about it later this episode. Yeah. So Mary Margaret storms off in tears and David's like, Oh, she's just having, I don't know, women problems. Don't worry about it. Bye. Yeah, she is having women problems. You know how upset women get when they kill a baby? By accident. Mm-hmm. So Regina goes to the torture cabin and the trio immediately assumes she failed. And she's like, she's like, I didn't fail per se. I did get an image of the door. And I mean, that's what we're after, right? Um, Can I just point out that Maleficent is standing there looking like a sexy Annie Hall in her pantsuit with the giant pussy bow? <laughs> so... That is all. <laughs> so Corella is like, this photo's useless. There's a glare that's stopping us from being able to clearly see the door. And Rumpel's like, ah, but that's not a glow. That's magic. That door is actually in the picture. And we need to get the we need to get the page itself to get the author, which is correct. But also, it's a, it's a pretty big leap in logic. Well, I mean, he knows more about how the author works. So it, I'm okay with him making that leap. But it's also one of those... God damn it. If Regina had just brought him the forged page, none of this would have happened. Well, theoretically, he would have recognized that it was a forged page. If she had just taken a picture of the forged page, however, then this glare of magic wouldn't affect it. Oh, wait, she did. Yeah. I mean, is the glow because Emma used magic to create the page, or...? Okay, well, two things. The camera wasn't actually on her when she took the picture, so maybe she realigned her phone seconds before she snapped it. Also, I don't understand. I didn't understand when we were first watching this episode why she didn't just say that that glare was from the protection spell on the page because she's already said the reason she couldn't steal it was because of a protection spell. Yeah. I mean, she makes it explicit that the good guys are 
onto her, and that's why she couldn't take the page. The good guys are onto her. There's a protection spell in the book. Um, but yeah, there's there's a whole thing with this. Uh, Regina says that it's going to be hard to get the uh, book because now the savior knows what they're after, and you know they shouldn't go up against her because she's full of savory goodness. But Maleficent has a plan. Anyway, we cut from that to Hook being unreasonably jealous of... August? Which... Dude, no one needs to be jealous of August. Did... And also, I really feel like the writers forgot August's role in the show. Because Emma's all... You don't need to worry about August. He's just a childhood friend. And yes, we went out on a date, but I'm not romantically attracted to him. Like. He wasn't a childhood friend. He's the guy that abandoned you. Yeah, he abandoned you as a baby and then showed up, like, once when you were seven to name you. And then again when you were, like, 28 to... Get your boyfriend to abandon you when you were pregnant. Oh, that was when she was 18. But she didn't She didn't know that. She didn't know he was around. Uh, yeah. Um... Like, no, he's not a friend of yours. He's a guy who, like, mysteriously showed up later in life to give you vague, not super helpful hints about what was going on. He's a plot ex machina who has never been good to you and only... Anyway. Uh, she does tell Hook that if he's gonna be jealous of anyone, he should be jealous of Lily. Hey, we're getting a reminder of Lily. Remember Lily? Lily was Emma's... Friend, when she ran away from foster care, they palled around, Bonnie and Clyde did it up for a couple of days, and then Emma found out that Lily was actually, like, adopted with a family that loved her. A rich family that loved her. Yeah, she was super sad about that. And, uh, and the, her little adventure with Lily was what got her sent to live in the Snow Queen's foster care. That's true. So... Yeah, interseason connections. I mean, it was during the same season, but they're splitting seasons now. Anyway, this awkward conversation is interrupted by Maleficent putting the entire town to sleep. You know, it's super convenient when you don't know how to end a scene to just have a sleeping curse be cast on everyone in it. Anyway, back in the flashback. Back in the flashback, uh, David and Mary Margaret help out a vendor whose uh, cart has got stuck in the mud. A peddler. Peddler. Okay, this is super cool. This is super cool. They help out a peddler who's gotten his, who, as you said, his cart has gotten stuck in the mud. And he talks about how cold he is, so David gives him some brandy to warm up and tells him to keep it. And he, in turn, tells them not to go up to the castle where Maleficent is, because she's just laid, not to go up to the castle in the west where Maleficent is, because she's just transformed into a dragon and laid an egg and she's being super and she's being super territorial and dangerous and that tracks and they should instead go to the east they should follow a path to a sorcerer who will help them out let me tell you why this is awesome all right the peddler as we will discover later in this episode is the author and in a fairy tale when you find someone on the side of the road who is in trouble and you help them out with a small kindness, like 
helping them get their cart out of the mud and giving them some brandy, they turn out to be a good fairy who rewards you with, like, having jewels come out of your mouth whenever you talk or giving you a cloak that turns you invisible so that you can stalk princesses. I just immediately went to that story about the two sisters. I know, that's a great story. But that aside. Well, no, not that aside. Because that's the point. It, the story, the Gail Carson Levine story where we find out that... It's actually really unpleasant to have jewels fall out of your mouth every time you talk. And the other sister who was punished for not helping the good fairy has insects and spiders come out of her mouth, which she uses to get people to do what she wants. Yeah, she buys a little chalkboard and she goes to various shops in town and writes out on the chalkboard, you know, give me cakes or I'll talk, which is awesome. <laughs> it's such a great story. I love that. That's Is that, was that story called The, uh, the Fairy's Mistake? Mm. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I mean, Gail Carson Levine, she wrote Elle Enchanted. So, awesome. you know. The book. The good book. Yeah. Not the mediocre not the mediocre movie. She had nice things to say about the movie, but I think that's just because she's a pleasure. She was like, everyone... But it was one of those things where, you know, you could tell that she was trying not to say something mean. I think it was... You could tell that everyone tried really hard on it. Oh my god, that is not a nice thing to say, Max. If I ever, like showed you like a piece of fan fiction I had written and your response to it was, well, you can tell you tried really hard. Like, we'd be in a fight. Actually, I think she said they got a really good cast for it. Well, that's accurate. But that's also the the lighting was really cool of compliments. Mm. But this is my point. I feel bad for people who have really well-lit uh, plays, though. You think people who do the lighting ever get mad that... Like, they're underappreciated? Um, I know they don't because, you know, I went to college to get... Because, you know, in college, my major was technical theater. Mm -hmm. Like, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a lighting designer on Broadway. And the thing that's understood is if you do a good job, people don't notice. If people notice your lighting, you messed up. It's like being an inker. Like, it's really hard. It's really vital. But people only notice if you do a bad job. Yeah, exactly. Except once when I was in high school and we did this super copyright infringing version of Fraggle Rock. And I was actually really, really proud of the lighting I did for that. And it was very noticeable. I um, I, I was just super proud because I really jury-rigged, you know, high school quality lighting to do some pretty cool special effects, in my opinion. But anyway. I'm, I'm getting way off track here. I wanted to tell you so many stories about our Fraggle Rock play, but I'm getting way off track. <laughs> let, me, let me back up. So the fact that the advice that this guy, this peddler, gives them after they help him is bad advice is a real subversion of how fairy tales work. As we're going to learn in this storyline, and in this episode, in fact, the author is not a person, it's a position. Like Santa Claus in The Santa Claus? Yeah, or Death and in the Incarnations of Immortality. We've made this exact analogy before. And we're probably going to make it again. Anyway, there have been several authors, and this author is a bad author. One of the reasons he's bad is because he changes the stories. He makes them turn out the way he wants them to turn out instead of just being a watcher, like in Marvel. And recording what and recording what transpires. 
And here, he's changed how fairy tales work. Once upon a time for all of its in-your-face bizarreness also has a lot of subtle, smart things. And this is one of them. I feel like part of our job is to call out when it does something that's both smart and subtle. And the author here, subverting the way fairy tales work, super smart. And honestly, this really should have been more what this show is focusing on. Because this show is, at its core, about stories. And this concept is really strong and it should have been the core thing at the story. Like, this should have been the central thesis of Once Upon a Time, exploring how characters who are living inside of an evolving narrative, who are aware of the evolving narrative, interact with said narrative. Honestly, it's a shame we spent so much what this show should have been instead energy on the Peter Pan season, because if there is one thing that stands for wasted potential, it is the author storyline. Anyway, so... Anyway. <laughs> also, this kind of reminds me of a uh, DM stepping in with an NPC to guide the party to the right place. Because he, he tells them, you need to, uh, you need to, in order to deal with this woman who has turned herself into a dragon and laid an egg... First, you have to go see this good wizard and get item X to cast spell Y so that you can get the blue key to enter the keep. And Oh my god, you're right. That is a thing that happens in role-playing games. Also, as you, Max, know, I'm getting ready for our next big campaign. Mm-hmm. And I'm totally going to make an NPC character who appears in different guises and tells you just point blank, this is what you should do, but is a trickster who is pointing you in the wrong direction all the time. So. Oh, it's going to be fun. So Snow thanks uh, the man for the advice and wanders off. She's going to remember this for a really long time. Although given all the stuff that happens in her life, this is sort of a very minor encounter. Okay. That's what you said when we watched this the first time, but this is not a minor encounter. This is a really evil thing she's about to do that she will say is causing her to lose sleep and that she's dwelling on every night. So I think it's reasonable that she'll remember meeting the guy who literally put her on the path to evil. See, I wouldn't give that to him. I'd give it to the person she's about to talk to, the sorcerer's apprentice. This is a guy who just gave her directions. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I do want to point out that... They kind of start conflating the sorcerer and the sorcerer's apprentice because they can't decide which they want this guy to be. Yeah. So now they just start talking about how the sorcerer and the, his apprentice are working together and this is what they did. Yes, he was expecting them and he knows that they're pregnant. He was expecting them and he knows that Mary Margaret's pregnant and he's right outside of Maleficent's area even though they were supposed to be in different directions but whatever honestly it's terrible plotting because as we said the author is a bad writer yeah so he's going to help them defeat her well he's going to help them with their problems their problem is that they want their kid to be good he's not going to help them defeat maleficent he's going to help them make he's going to help them ensure that their child grows up to be good Hmm. and we're going to see more of that later Meanwhile, back in the real world, I know there's plot stuff happening, but I can't stop looking at how amazing Maleficent's outfit is. Her gray pea coat over the gray pantsuit with the 
kicky gray fedora and her giant staff with the purple orb at the top of it. It's a very good... She looks like she's part of a very specific subgenre of fantasy, like alternate 1940s wizard witch town. Right, yeah, like, um, yeah, like an urban fantasy, but historical urban fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, love it. But she's talking to Rumpel about how he needs to start giving her more. Like, she knows that Corella and Ursula were means to an end, that end was resurrecting her. He needs her, and he needs to start giving her what she wants, which is information about her missing baby. And Rumpel made a deal with Ursula and Cruella to get into Storybrooke, but Maleficent wasn't part of that deal. He has no privity of contract with Maleficent, so she's going to make all the demands she wants before she helps Rumpel out. Yeah, and she... (laughs) I know Maleficent's a villain, technically... But again, she's done less harmful stuff than basically all of the main characters, and her main goal is to find out what happened to her kid. Yeah. Like what a bitch. I Am know, I right? right? She makes it very clear. She's like, I put the entire town to sleep. I'm useful to you. You need to help me find my baby. So David and Mary Margaret are walking downtown. They're having a very loud conversation about how they made a vow to be good, but the things that they're doing aren't good, and they are they even heroes anymore? <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. Mary Margaret thinks the problem is that they're lying to Emma and not, you know, that they threw Lily into a pit. Like, God damn it, guys. Anyway, eventually they get their heads out of their own assholes long enough to notice that everyone in the town has passed out. And they figure maybe they're immune to it because they've been through the sleeping curse before, which I guess makes sense. I think we've heard that before. We've seen stuff like that before, you know, being... After a spell is cast on you, you become inoculated to it. Like Like chicken pox. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the spell shattered sight, but yeah. Yeah, chicken pox, shattered sight. Anyway. They're looking, the trio and Regina are looking through the uh, loft to try to find the book, but it's not there. And Rumpel figures, wait a sec, there's someone who's always around the book who's been through a sleeping curse before. Yeah, Maleficent. Like, the one person that you needed to knock out is the person who's immune. Maybe not the best go-to move. And we cut to Henry running with the book. By the way, I really like Henry's coat here. It's this sort of kind of old-timey blue coat that's got the strap on the back of it. Oh, it is a good coat. I didn't really notice it. I am sorry. We cut from that scene to Maleficent striding with her hands in her pockets, and I have so many bisexual feelings that I don't even know what to do with them. Yeah, they're going after Henry, and Regina's like, okay... We're going to go after Henry, but if any of you, like, lays a hand on my kid, you're going to be looking at the business end of one of my fireballs. Yeah, and they're like, we thought you were evil. And it's like, you know, evil people love their children too, right? You understand that's the entirety of Maleficent's plot, right? And also, that was all of Rumpel's motivation for the first many parts of this show. 
but Mary Margaret and David are spying on the three of them as they go look as the uh, trio goes looking for Henry. Mary Margaret whips out her cell phone and warns Henry and Henry's like, yeah, I'm on top of things because I'm the one competent character in the show. Okay, so I hate to go back to this, but just remember in the early seasons when we really hated Henry? I know, it's weird how much we've come around on him. I know, he's legitimately one of my favorite characters in the show now, which is just such a weird change. I, I, I don't have an explanation. I mean, did Jared Gilmore grow into the part? Did they stop making him really obnoxious? I mean, a child who knows what's going on when all of the adults around him doesn't is annoying. Although, is it really? Because I love series of unfortunate events. Yeah, I mean, I don't... are they just writing him better, or... I mean... I mean, he's definitely evolved as an actor, because, you know, he's older and he's been doing it for several years at this point, but... I don't know. It's it's weird how how much Henry Henry being the most confident member of this family doesn't bother me at all now. I'm like, yes, good. Have faith in Henry. He doesn't need you two screwing things up. I mean, I guess if my if my options are the writing is getting better or Jared Gilmore is getting better, I'm gonna go with it's Jared Gilmore. It might also help that he's not actively working against Regina anymore. As Regina is our favorite part of the show, and now they're on the same side. So that might be a part of it. Maybe. Maybe. That might be it. But also, I feel like we do need to give Jared Gilmore props for He is a much better actor here than he was at the beginning. He grew into the part, and he definitely... And he's definitely invested in his scenes in a way that some people could take a cue from. Mm. Mm. <laughs> so David and Mary Margaret are like, don't worry, Henry, we're on our way. And David stops Mary Margaret, and he's like, wait, I think I know a way that we can solve all of our problems by murdering the author, because he hasn't got to murder anyone in a really long time. Okay, yeah, let's talk about this. He wants to destroy the page, because then the author won't be freed, and all the problems will go away. And god damn you two. Mary Margaret's argument for why they shouldn't is because then Regina won't get her happy ending. To which David is like, fuck Regina? I mean, honestly, you remember that we were enemies with her for forever, right? Which, okay, whatever. But... It's not that murder is wrong. Nobody seems to care that burning the page will probably kill the author and will definitely imprison him. And at this point, they know nothing about the author. We know that he's a jackass, but they don't. Yeah, all they know is that he's a powerful dude who likes them, apparently, because uh, he made them protagonists. And, yeah, this is an incredibly dark thing to pull. That, And David doesn't actually say fuck Regina. He's like, oh, she'll just have to find her happy ending another way. Because, you know, Ursula, Ursula just was like, oh, wait, I don't have to be evil and had a happy ending. I mean, honestly... Regina could do the same. Regina's happy ending is not hanging out with the Charmings anymore. Well, I mean... Regina thinks that she's unlucky in love because of the author, but... Love is just hard, Regina. Like, maybe your happy ending is working on yourself, and... 
being with your awesome kid. Yeah. And that hot blonde sheriff. But David talks about how they've got how they're too far down the path and they can't turn back now. So clearly they have to kill the author. They have to destroy the page and trap the author forever. Possibly killing him. So back in the flashback, they, the two of them ask the sorcerer's apprentice which of their visions was right. And he's like, okay, well, babies grow up. Like, yeah, he says both of them could be. Your daughter could be true good or true evil because babies are blank slates. He doesn't point out that they could have been seeing that same baby at different points in her life. Right. She was born a baby and wasn't actively trying to kill people as an infant. It's still possible to grow up and be evil after that. Also, I'm disappointed that the sorcerer and or sorcerer's apprentice doesn't point out that maybe Emma does grow up to be good and it's just that Snow White turns evil Mm. and that she's actually right to destroy Snow White's heart. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. Maybe my bias is showing. But he tells them, well, there is a way to guarantee that your baby uh, be good, which is to take all of the potential for evil from that baby put it in another baby and then murder that baby well now to be fair he does not include the murder that baby part he just says we're going to take all of the evil out of your baby and put it into another baby he doesn't even say other baby he says another vessel but it needs to be a blank slate like a baby yeah And he says, once the spell has been enacted, it can't be reversed. Yeah, he's being very clear about what's going to happen here. You are going to funnel all of your baby's evil into another baby. But he does use language that suggests, yeah, that baby is definitely going to die. I'm just saying, he gives them enough information that they need to understand that what they're going to do is super bad. They will not later be able to say, you know with any sort of believability, that they were tricked into doing whatever they might do. I mean, they might say it anyway, because they're the goddamn worst, but they have all of the information, or at least enough information at this point, is my point. So, David says, oh, I really don't feel like, I know I like murdering stuff, but I really don't feel comfortable sucking all of the evil out of our kid and putting it in another kid and snow's like ah but what if it's a baby of a person we don't like or who's another race yeah there's definitely some classism slash racism here because she's like what if it doesn't have to be a child what if it's maleficent's baby maleficent's egg right okay there's some serious magical racism happening here because She's just really insistent that the egg is not a baby. Remember, two episodes ago, Maleficent appeared to her and told her that she was expecting a baby. So, fuck you, Mary Margaret. Yeah, and she she says, we've seen Maleficent as both a human and a dragon. We know she's evil, so obviously her baby's going to be evil. So is it really that bad if we may, if we put the extra evil from our child into her child? Yes, Mary Margaret, it's that bad. It's that bad. Anyway, back in the present, Henry is looking at the page of the door and then it like animates. Like he can see light from coming from underneath the door, which is super cool. Yeah. 
It's a neat little effect. And it helps that this is like an actually illustrated door, not a crappily photoshopped version of a door. And it pulls an Indiana Jones by projecting light from the keyhole onto a certain, uh, uh, onto a drawer in the mansion. And that drawer has the key in it. It's, it's actually really cool. Honestly, Henry, super competent. He's had the page for like an hour and he's already figured out how to free the author. (laughs) Unfortunately... Regina knew that this is exactly where he would be, and she walks in the door, and... She's not alone. Yeah, she she comes in ahead of everyone else and is like, I'm so sorry about this, Henry. And immediately behind her is Cruella and Maleficent. And she's like, hey, you better back off. And Cruella's like, no, I don't think you have... I don't think you have it in you to be a true disciplinarian. And Regina turns to her, and she's very... If you touch my son, I'm going to rip your face off. I love Regina. She's such a good mom. And we find out Henry's middle name here. Yes, we do. It's Daniel. Aw, he's dead guy, dead guy junior. I mean, once we find out that Henry's middle name is Daniel, can we just... I mean, we've already, we, we're already ignoring the stuff in the first episode where... Emma's superpower told her that Regina didn't really love Henry, but I feel like at this point, yeah, that's clearly 100% false. Regina does and always has loved Henry, despite the fact that she used to be evil. Hey, it bears, that bears repeating. Evil people can love their children. So this is a great bit of acting between, uh, Lana Perea and uh, Jared Gilmore here. Yeah, usually on television shows when people are like secretly communicating things between each other without other people knowing, it's really obvious. And you're like, how do other people not know that? But they actually do it really subtly, just like a barely raised eyebrow. And just like the way his eyes move just a little bit. It's really good acting on both of their parts. Because she's like, I need you to give them the page. And then he gives them the page that Emma created with magic, which you will recall he's stuck in the book. Good job, writers. Well seated. Yeah, well seated. And it's just, there's a great moment where Cruella and, uh, where Cruella and uh, Maleficent are leaving. And Regina just gives Henry this look before going after them. It's such a good scene. Yeah. Unfortunately, we're back with the Terror Twins. Back in the past, Mary Margaret and David come to Maleficent's cave, which is being guarded by Cruella and Ursula. And and Mary Margaret uses the opium to knock them out. I assume it's the opium. The poppy seed potion that knocks people unconscious. They enter the cave and David kicks over the rattle. The rattle that we've seen have all of this meaning for Maleficent as she searches for her lost daughter. And Mary Margaret's all like, oh, she's just a dragon. She hoards shiny things. And it's like, really? Really, Mary Margaret? You know her. You know that she is a sentient human being who has the ability to turn into a dragon. What? She came to you and told you she was expecting a baby. I am so 
mad at David and Mary Margaret for acting like they think that this is not a human and that the thing that they are about to do is anything other than kidnapping a human child. I also kind of like this because, uh, as you know, Maleficent was Pam from True Blood and in True Blood, vampires have a silver weakness. So I think it's kind of a winky thing that everything in the cave is silver. Oh, that is cute. So the two of them come upon an egg. The egg has like a nautilus shape in it, like a, the golden ratio. Mm-hmm. It does. It's super cool. Uh, I also want to point out the last time David seriously interacted with Maleficent, it was when he was shoving a similar egg down her throat. So you think David knocked up Maleficent? Oh. You think Lily is half David? I'm just th- I'm just saying no because she's cool. David should have more questions here. So they grab the egg and Maleficent, you know, in her dragon form, tries to blast them because they're trying to steal her child and Mary Margaret basically holds up the egg and like hides behind it and is like if you blast us, you're going to kill your kid and Okay, really? Dragons aren't immune to fire? I guess not as eggs. But remember, this... If Game of Thrones taught me anything. It's the dragons actually need a lot of fire. But I know Mary Margaret doesn't know this, but that egg does in- contain a human baby, and human babies are not typically great around fire. Yeah, I guess. I guess I've been just completely brainwashed by Game of Thrones, where dragon eggs only hatch when placed inside of fire. But Maleficent turns from her dragon form back into her human form wearing, I know this can't possibly be right, but it looks like she's wearing a leather jacket over a nightie. No, that's exactly what's happening. She's wearing a jacket over a nightie and it's so that we see that she's, and she doesn't have her horn headpiece. We're supposed to see that she's just a frazzled mother right now. She turned to her human form so that she could plead with David and Mary Margaret. She asked them, what kind of people are you? You're threatening my baby. And Snow says, this isn't a baby. It's going to become a monster just like you. And then... Shut the fuck up, Mary Margaret. Just so that Mary Margaret cannot have any plausible deniability later, Maleficent says to her, mother to mother, do not take my child. And Snow says... After we're done with your baby, we'll bring it... Well, she says, after we're done with the egg, we'll bring it back. And then to, like, add insult to injury, she steps on the rattle on her way out the cave and breaks it. What a dick. Yeah, so Maleficent tries to stop them using magic, but all she does is uh, trap herself in the cave. That is a... Yeah, she was a critical fumble on her part. She rolled a one. Yeah, she, uh, she fires a magic bolt. It hits some rocks. And they collapse the tunnel. If only she knew how to teleport. Oh, maybe she can't when she's... She, I mean, she did just give birth to an egg. Yeah, maybe she's recovering. We haven't gotten to this part in Farscape yet. Mm Mm-hmm. But there's going to be a plot point later on where after Moya, the ship, gives birth, there's a lot of stuff it can't do because it's recovering. Ah. By the way, the ship is going to get pregnant. Okay. So, back in the real world, uh, David and Mary Margaret come running into the room where Henry was, and Henry explains everything that went down, including the fact that he gave the villains the fake page Emma created earlier. 
and that Regina knew what was up, that she had not gone over to the dark side, so to speak. He gives David and Mary Margaret the page and he holds up the key and he's like, look, we can free the author. And he's about to do it when David yells at him not to. Yeah. And then David tries to cover and it's like, um, it could be dangerous and it could explode and we definitely don't want a kid around when we do it. And he holds out his hand for Henry to give them and he holds out his hand for Henry to give him the key. And Henry hesitates because Henry absolutely knows that they're lying to him, but he doesn't really know how to process the feeling. He doesn't know what it means because he's so not ready to believe that David and Mary Margaret would lie to him. God, Jared Gilmore is a, Jared Gilmore is a really good actor in this episode. I, I just, I can't get over it. How He does a lot of really subtle, close to the vest acting here. Yeah, he does a lot with his eyes. So Rumpel goes back to his shop to... Be creepy with an unconscious bell? Yeah, his magic comes at a cost, and the cost is you, and... Yeah, he brings the unconscious bell back to the shop and, like, tells her that he loves her, but not more than his magic, basically. Yeah, and, like, they can't be together until he finds a way to change the rules of the universe and... Oh, God. They're not a good couple. This scene is basically there because the episode was, like, three minutes short. Well, they wanted to remind us that Rumpel and Belle are a thing. I felt really bad, by the way. I mentioned this. I mentioned our podcast to a group of people, and someone was like, Oh, I should listen to that. I'm totally into Rumpel. And I was just like, oh. Uh, well, I... I think we've been clear about this. Like, ship whatever you want. Like, it's cool. Just be aware that there are some implications to certain relationships on this show. But hey, love what you love. I love all sorts of problematic couples. So, yeah. I mean, Emma and Regina are not without their problematic elements. Oh, you mean the fact that the whole first season has Regina trying to kill Emma? It's not a great foundation for a relationship. Yeah, I just want to. Yeah, I just want to be on record that I like Rum Bell shippers. You do you. You be awesome. Put on all of the awesome Rum Bell cosplay that you want. Write all of the awesome Rum Bell fan fiction that you want. Just, we're just not into the pairing. Yeah, there are reasons it's not a relationship you should want to emulate. But as long as you're aware of those reasons, it's cool. Like, I mean, well, I mean, are there are there any? Are there a lot of non-toxic relationships in pop culture? Strong point. So, uh, the, the, I guess, new trio show up and call out Rumble for being a creep. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Like, let's, uh, yeah, whatever. We got magic shit to do. Regina hands him the, uh, paper. Sorry, when you said that, I just got, I just got magic to do from a funny thing happened on the way to the forum in my head. <laughs> So, Regina hands him the uh, fake picture, and he immediately calls her out on it. Yeah, he's like, oh, this is an obvious fake, and you had to have known it's a fake because you're not an idiot. And then he just looks at Maleficent, and Maleficent puts her under the sleeping curse, and she just passes out there in the street. And he's like, all right, let's bring her to her vault. Creepy. Super creepy. Okay. So. Wait, I mean, we, we can't. 
we can't really gloss over this because, my dear listeners, we have finally reached the point of Baby Death Pit. We are at the Baby Death Pit. And I'm sorry to say, we've built this up a lot, we've talked about it a lot. Unfortunately, it turns out we weren't lying to you so much as we misremembered. David and Mary Margaret do not actively throw a baby into a death pit. They are at fault. Oh no, they are 100% at fault for the baby being thrown into the death pit, but they don't physically do it themselves. Yes, instead the sorcerer casts the spell, puts all of the evil into the egg. Oh, and it rhymes. By the way, it's very clear from the wording of the spell that he's doing that he's going to destroy the egg after the ceremony's completed. Yeah. He he basically says it, maybe not exactly in words, but and David and Mary Margaret notice this. David David turns to her and he's like distant shores like yeah he specifically points out and then they ask him as soon as the spell is done being cast they're like so what did you mean by that and he's like well this thing has all of its natural darkness and all of your baby's darkness i can't let it live in this land so i'm going to banish it to a place where it could never hurt anyone which i have to imagine is because it would immediately die spoiler alert he drops her in the middle of the woods in our world. He drops the baby into the middle of the woods in our world. Yeah. Uh, if it weren't for the fact that a couple of extra people end up getting sent along with it, that baby would have died of exposure basically immediately. Yeah. Yeah. They they set that baby up to be killed. Now, when they realize he's going to destroy the egg, Mary Margaret says, we told its mother we would bring it back. So her protestations that she did not understand that this was a child are 100% bullshit. We told its mother we would bring it back. Also, David's all like, you didn't tell us that this was going to happen. He, the, You could have stopped him. He literally said at the beginning of the spell that it's going to be banished to distant shores. Also, David, what kind of... Moonbeams and rainbows did you think was going to happen from I take all of the evil out of your kid and put it into this kid. And then, and then, the sorcerer opens up the pit, gets ready to kick that baby in. The flaming pit of death, might I add. The shell cracks and Mary Margaret sees that it is a human infant's arm in there and now she's all worked up about it. She says... Charming! It's a baby! You knew it was a baby! That was the whole point of you getting it, was that you were getting someone else's baby to dump your daughter's evil into. And then she's all like, oh no, we have to save it! And... And Ursula and Corella, having since woken up from being knocked out, go run up and they're like, what have you done? You stole that baby! What the hell is wrong with you? When Corella DeVille is calling you out... Yeah, when Cruella DeVille thinks you've gone too far, bitch, you've gone too far. But they're completely useless, so they fall into the portal too. Ursula and Cruella and the baby fall into the death pit. By the way, in a kind of reverse of what happened with Neil. Yeah. Because Neil went into the portal to our world. Rumpel was supposed to go with him, but did not. 
the baby was supposed to go in by itself and die, but instead, this is how Cruella and Ursula came to our world. Yeah. Yeah. And literally the only reason they that it didn't die was because Cruella and Ursula brought it with them to an adoption agency, which was pretty considerate of them considering they're... I guess I'm How? I'm a hundred percent willing to uh, assume that that was all Ursula. How did they even know to do that? Because I was just about to say they that the adoption agency would have had a lot of questions, but maybe they just dropped it off at a fire station. But they definitely wouldn't have known to do that. Huh. You know what? They're really smart. They survived in our world a lot better than David and Mary Margaret would have under similar situate under similar circumstances. Yes, and Mary Margaret says. Charming, we've made a terrible mistake. That was not a mistake. No, you did something really evil. You did a shitty thing. And I'd like to use that bit from Bojack Horseman where he's talking to Herb for this. You did a shitty thing and you need to accept that you did a shitty thing. Like, they did something terrible and well you know what mary margaret's doing here she's laying the groundwork to be like i didn't know that this was gonna happen we went to this guy and we asked him to save our child and he just killed maleficent's baby we had no idea especially the fact that she calls it a mistake it reminds me of uh there was a thing i saw on twitter uh where this guy was talking about how Whenever someone's cheating, they call it a mistake. And he's like, it's not a mistake. It was a series of conscious choices that led to something you regret doing. Like, yeah, did, like it's not a one step thing. You had to make many, many choices in order to get to this point. Also, can I be clear about what Mary Margaret thinks the mistake was? I mean, there are two options here. She thinks the mistake was either one she thought that they were just going to put all of their evil into a baby. They didn't know that then the baby was going to be banished. So they just thought that they were going to horribly mutilate and destroy a baby, not throw it into a death pit. Or, alternatively, she thought that it was a shape-shifting dragon human in dragon form. But now that it's a shape-shifting dragon human in human form, that's an entirely different story. Yeah. So, either way, I'm not feeling a lot of, oh, Mary Margaret, this isn't your fault-ness coming off of this. God damn it, I hate them so much. They're the worst. So, back in the real world, David is holding the uh, pa- the piece of paper with the author in it over a fire. He's like, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to burn this piece of paper. We're going to tell Henry that we tried to use the key on it, but... Something went wrong. Maybe the sorcerer was evil and the key just destroyed the paper. And that would be a really good lie. Yeah, that w- that's a really solid lie. That's a much better lie than they usually come up with. But Mary Margaret tells him, you know, David, I'm a contrarian and you're the only person here. So I know normally we team up with this sort of thing, but since I'm a contrarian and you have the only idea, I have to go against it. We have to tell everyone. Also, her problem isn't, oh, if we do this, we will kill a person we don't know anything about. Her problem is, if we do this, Regina will lose her chance to bone Robin Hood. 
that is her big thing is we're going to regina will lose her chance at redemption or whatever yeah i mean her happy ending whatever but let's be clear the reason regina thinks her happy ending is being taken away is because she's separated from robin hood i mean she's mayor of like okay can we just pause the david and mary margaret hate for a second to really examine what's happening with regina okay regina cast a curse Mm-hmm. And the intention of the curse was to destroy Snow White's happiness. And the idea was she was going to be living in her ideal world where she's the mayor and she's in charge and everyone does what she tells them to do. And she watches David and Mary Margaret flail around. And then everyone clapped. Yes. Right? She realized that she was empty. So she goes and adopts a son who she really loves And this gives her, like, a moment where she realizes, oh, this human connection that I was missing, this is really important. Then, the curse is broken. And instead of being punished for cursing the entire realm, she's all like, wait, I'm good now. And everyone loves her, including this super hot sheriff. And her kid becomes, like, a super cool teenager who's willing to do whatever to help her out. And she's still the mayor. And bonus she doesn't have to bone robin hood he's somewhere else in what way is this not a happy ending yeah honestly regina has as much of a happy ending currently as any of the rest of the cast does regina has as much of a happy ending as any human has a right to expect you know what this reminds me of in a weird way what okay so in charmed there's a bit where uh in the garbage season and the like super garbage season i don't even know which one you think is the garbage season the postscript season oh god that is garbage that's why i I, the super garbage season where piper is trying to do something uh, like she's trying to have a day off and go to a spa and uh oh right yeah and leo gets locked out of the house and he calls her to uh you know let him in and she's like I don't see how I can have a normal life when all of this stuff keeps coming up. When that is normal, that is a normal life. A yeah, normal that... life is your husband getting locked out of the house and needing you to come let him in. Yeah, that's not a magical problem, Piper. That's just a that's just a normal human problem. What do you think? Like, which that's what this whole like weird fixation on happy endings. Like, life isn't you getting everything you want all the time. Regina has a pretty solid life right now. This is a relatively happy ending she just doesn't have a boyfriend currently yeah all right so that whole heteronormative nonsense aside let's keep let's go back to talking about what trash david and mary margaret are mary margaret's talking about how when regina ripped out her heart and showed it to her she thought the darkness that was uh, regina thought that the darkness that she saw in there was because snow killed her mom but it wasn't it started a long time ago Hey, guess what? Snow's been terrible for a long, long time. And... Who's surprised? And they need to come clean about this whole thing because heroes don't do what's easy. They do what's right. Okay, so... God damn, I hate them. But I have... This reminded me of this terrible ex-boyfriend I had in college. Mm -hmm. I mean, in college he was my boyfriend, now he's my ex-boyfriend. And he once told me that humans want to do good like we want to be good 
So maybe this inclination that the good thing is hard is wrong. And if something seems like it's easy, it's because it's what we should be doing. That's a dubious philosophy. Yeah, he was a dubious philosopher. I like that. So we smash cut to them having told Emma everything, and Emma is super fucking pissed. Yeah, and the thing that she's one of the things she's most pissed at is the gaslighting. Like Which, fair, I mean Yeah, I mean, not to downplay how evil what they did was, but she was doubting her superpower. And I know it's ironic for us to be like, how dare you make Emma doubt her superpower? But really, she's upset that, like Henry earlier when he gave David the key, she knew her parents were lying to her, were hiding something from her. But she was so unready to distrust them that she thought that she was the one who was wrong. No, it's the children who are wrong. This whole thing... Like, David says that they only lied to her because they were trying to protect her. And she, What? 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 Which, there's this great scene in Civil War. I don't really like Civil War. The, uh, the Avengers movie? The, uh, the Marvel event. The Marvel comic event. Uh, where the there's a group of superheroes who are trying to get all superheroes to register with the government. And there's another group of superheroes who are like, that seems like a really bad idea. Yeah. Historically that hasn't worked out great for marginalized groups. Yeah. And there's a bit where Sue Storm finds out that her husband's been sending super villains out to collect the people who won't register and locking them in basically a hell dimension he has in their basement because Richards is terrible reed richards is terrible he's so bad he should be a charming but she calls him on it and he he tells her the same thing he's like i didn't want you to know about this because i was trying to protect you and it has one of the best sue store moments where she just blows a hole through the entire building and she's like do i look like i need protecting is Sue Storm, Sue Storm is like the patron saint of female characters done wrong by male authors. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I like about modern interpretations of Sue Storm is that she is very clearly the most powerful member of the team. It's a Marvel Girl situation. where I'll, uh, Speaking of female characters done wrong by male authors. Although there, there's this great thing going around online, I'm not sure if you've seen it, where they take a bunch of scenes Kirby drew... And then a bunch with no dialogue, and then they put them side to side with the dialogue that Stanley wrote, and they pointed out how very carefully all of the caption stuff makes it clear that the women who are doing all of this very competent, like they're like, not to get on my high horse, but Jean Grey basically carries the X Men through a lot of Silver Age stories. So there's the art which has Jean like. They're tied up by the circus of crime, and she telekinetically... Circus of crime. Yes, the circus of crime. And oh, she, like, Silver Age. telekinetically grabs a knife and cuts all of their bonds. And and that's what Jack Kirby wrote, or that's what Jack Kirby drew. And Stan Lee puts in dialogue that has Scott Summers or Professor X talking her through every step of it. And it's like, if you just look at the art, Jean Grey is the most competent member of the team. Yeah, yeah. 
it's basically Stan Lee fighting with Jack Kirby over how confident he wants the female characters to be. And it's the same with a lot of early uh, Fantastic Four stuff. You have the Invisible Woman who's doing all of these things. And then you have dialogue put in to make it clear that men are telling her to do these things and she would be helpless on her own. Well, I mean, the whole original Phoenix saga is about fear of powerful women and the way that women need to just control their power or else it will consume entire universes and them. See, I think that the original Phoenix saga is sort of uh, a counter take on the... uh, the biblical messianic story. Oh, that's interesting. Well, it's all about how the divine and the human can't coexist in the same being. No, I, I, I'm with you. Yeah. And I feel, and it goes the same direction. Jean Grey sacrificed herself to save the universe. Yeah. All right. So this has been welcome to the 616. <laughs> For more about Christ archetypes in fiction. <laughs> Look literal. Look at literally any fiction written ever. Yeah, yeah. Look at basically any story. <laughs> All right. So anyway. So anyway, Emma, the savior. So anyway, Emma, the savior, finding out she's been betrayed by the people she trusted most. Oh, anyway, she gets ready to storm out of the loft, and Snow stops her and is like, "Wait, I'm your mother," and she looks at her and says. I don't care. (gasps) Yep, just like at the beginning, she metaphorically crushes Snow's heart. Oh, I I thought this was a direct reference to the story of Pierre, who did not care. Do you remember that? Yes. (laughs) No. (laughs) In Regina's vault, the villains are standing over the unconscious Regina, and Corella's like, I should slit her throat right now, and Rumble's like, shut up, Corella. Good luck with that, Corella. Hmm. But no, they've got deeper plans for her. She's going to help them in ways she can't possibly imagine. Rumple's going to do something that will make her do his bidding forever. Yeah, that's fucking creepy, guys. You have an unconscious woman on the floor. Don't, don't, no. Yeah, I know you're villains, but... But still. Anyway, out on the pier, Emma is all sad and hook comes to comfort her and she's like did my parents send you because they knew i wouldn't talk to them and hook's like yeah yeah Yeah, that's that's literally how this works but august is apparently awake now and it turns out the whole is he he's gonna die if he doesn't have strength of will thing was pointless he could have just been asleep whatever anyway august is awake and he is just spouting exposition like a fire hose so better get back and lap some of that up (laughs) barf but yes (laughs) I'm sorry, was that a gross analogy? That was a gross analogy. So, back in Fairy Tale Land, uh, Sneezy is hanging up a mobile that Cinderella, hey, remember her? Oh, hey, Cinderella exists. Yeah, she sent uh, Snow a mobile, and Snow freaks out at Sneezy for putting it up. Snow would be a terrible leader of a country. Although, to be fair, you shouldn't hang things in people's rooms without, like, clearing it. I mean, Snow's freaking out because it's a unicorn mobile, the one we've seen before that was Emma's mobile. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, maybe she just didn't think a crystal mobile was good for a baby. Or maybe she already had plans for, like, a bumblebee-themed nursery, and it doesn't go with it. Like, don't hang things up without clearing it with the person whose room it is. So she freaks out, and Sneezy flees, and she's like, I don't want unicorns in our room because it'll remind me of the time we... 
shoved all of her child's evil into another baby and then threw it into a death pit. And David's like, hey, hey, Maleficent's a dick, so it's okay that we did that. Yeah, that's what he literally says. And he's like, yeah, fuck Maleficent. Maybe she wasn't even telling the truth about the Dark Curse. Yeah, and if she wasn't telling the truth about the Dark Curse, we totally would have been justified killing her baby. If she lied about the Dark Curse, she deserved to have her baby thrown in a death pit. Also, he says her baby probably would have grown up to be evil just like her. Even though the entire point was that they needed a vessel that was at this point a blank slate, neither good nor evil. So, shut up, David. And Snow's having a crisis of conscience. He's like, what if we're not heroes anymore? What if we lose our status as protagonists? Which, I'm sorry, what if we're not heroes anymore is not the thing you should be worried about. You should be worried about the baby you threw into a pit, you awful, awful people. No, no, yes. They start talking about, like, how they're going to earn their redemption. But I feel like step fucking one of earning your redemption should be going to Maleficent and making this up to her. Like, Rumpel's been spending the last few centuries figuring out how to cross over and save Neil. That's what you should be doing. The only path to redemption involves saving Lily. But no. Instead, David's like, here's how we're going to be heroes. We're just going to act like heroes and that'll make us heroes because that's how that works. We're going to inspire other people to be good by acting as good heroic people. Okay, so you already brought up BoJack Horseman, so I'm going to do it again. The speech that Todd gives him where he says you can't just keep doing shitty things and then acting like you feel bad about it. You have to at some point stop doing shitty things. Like, it's it's not enough that you decide, oh, we're going to be good again. You have to make up for the bad that you did. In fact, it's like an angel. When Angel was first put on his path to redemption and he was warned that he had to remember that he had done unforgivable things that he was working to redeem. Because otherwise he'd start to think, oh... My ledger has more black than red in it, to borrow from a different fiction. So maybe it wouldn't be so bad if I ate this guy. Yeah, he, that's a, that's a, the thing in Angel. Angel talks about it a lot. It's the good that you do doesn't undo the evil that you've done. Yeah. Like, you can't make up for bad things by doing good things. Also, I mean, also... Maleficent and Lily are the victims here. It's not on you to decide that you've been redeemed. Honestly, you're not redeemed unless Maleficent and Lily decide that you are, which, in my opinion. Which, spoiler alert, that's not going to happen anytime soon. I don't really feel like that's a spoiler. <laughs> People tend to not forgive you when you throw them into death pits. Mm. In Regina's vault, uh, Maleficent confronts Rumpel. She's like, you said earlier that you would help me find my baby. And he said, well, I said I would help you if you got the page and you didn't get the page. So, and she's like, okay, whatever. Fuck that. I'm the most powerful ally you have. Now help me. Yeah. She... I kind of like that. I like that she's like, yeah, we're not doing deals right now. You just help me. Okay. Yeah. Like we're coworkers. This is just a thing you should do. Not because it's. Not because it's good, but because it's right. 
which I feel like there's a really strong distinction between good and right. It is the right thing to do for him him to show her what happened to her baby. Yeah. Now, he does warn her that maybe poking at the pain is not the best way to get over losing her baby. By saying that, is he saying that he regrets the centuries he spent trying to figure out what happened with Neil? Because I think that's what he's saying. Oh, yeah. Like, this is definitely a it-might-be-better-if-you-leave-well-enough-alone thing. Which is super depressing since, as we pointed out earlier in this episode, that was a catalyst for the whole show, him trying to figure out what happened with Neil. Although, if he hadn't done that stuff, what would have happened with Neil? I mean, a whole bunch of this show is predicated on Rumpel's actions to get Neil back. If he had just let him go, Emma definitely wouldn't have been born. We saw how much manipulation he had to do to get everyone into the place where Emma would be born. Yeah, I mean, from Neil's point of view, Neil would have just spent his time in Neverland, come back here, grown up, been a guy. Yeah, he'd have just had a normal life in New York City. Yeah, uh, Emma wouldn't have been born, and Regina would not have been born. Oh, that's fucking tragic. <laughs> anyway, he does some scrum. Which means... But that means Snow wouldn't have been born because, uh, because if Cora hadn't married, uh, if Cora hadn't married Henry, then Snow's mom would have married Henry instead of Leopold and so, or whoever Snow's dad's name was. Leopold. Yes. So basically none of the cast would have existed if Rumble hadn't gone on this centuries long, uh, tear looking for his kid huh that is weird to think about how much basically once upon a time is a story with a single point failure system like time travelers could take out once upon a time in one shot mm. Mm. anyway he does some scrying for maleficent and uh hey remember earlier in this episode when some when uh emma out of nowhere mentioned that girl she met that one time who she had, like, the brief one-shot friendship with. Oh, you mean Lily? The person who this episode we have not at all hidden is Maleficent's daughter? Yeah. W well, it turns out Lily was Maleficent's daughter. What? It's, uh, it's really good that she's got that star-shaped birthmark because that's the way we can tell that it's her. Okay, I totally didn't even notice it. You're right, the baby has the star-shaped birthmark on her wrist, and I did not notice that in any of my viewings of this episode. Well, remember in The Good Place when Michael uh, has that speech to let the humans know that he's still on uh, their side? Right, and he they told him that they got all four of his clues, and he's like, I left 72 separate clues in that speech. Yeah, which this is what that is, because, like, they mention it's Lily... They've got the shot of the, like, there are so many things so that you know for certain that this baby is the girl that Emma hung out with in that one episode. The actor who played her dad is the same actor. Yeah. Now, by the way, her name isn't Lily. Lily is short for Lilith. Okay, so he points out, the dad points out, he's like, we want to call her Lily, so we're naming her Lilith. My parents wanted to call me Max, so they named me Max. You don't have to do the longer version of a name if you don't want to. Okay, my parents did a longer version of the name, so... Yeah, but you were named after a specific person. That's true. I was. I'm but... sure if they just wanted to call you Tina, they would have named you Tina. Yeah, they decided at the last minute to actually call me Tina. 
But it's important that she be named Lilith, since Lilith is the evil Catholic woman. Yeah, Adam's first wife. Yes. See, Adam can be married as many times as he wants. Well, I mean twice. So Maleficent is really happy that her baby's alive. It's odd that Rumpel showed her Lily as a baby because he had to look back in time to do it first. Yeah, he could have described for her right now. And he would have seen, well, we'll get there. Yeah, we will next week, I think. Anyway, Maleficent realizes Lily's alive. Lily came over to this world. So, you know, we've got some plot for another couple episodes. So... Meanwhile, August has entirely recovered from his transformation disease. And, by the way, he's got a lot of information to share. How does he even know any of this? That's a good question and one I don't think we ever actually get the answer to. For the rest of the show, August is the guy who knows things that need to be exposited. He's a fountain of exposition. And... In the first season, like, there was a good reason he should know some of this stuff, but not really here. Yeah, he knows the things that we've already talked about. How How the author is not a single person. He's a series of people, including someone named Walt. Okay, no, this is, like, really painful. First he says he was a philosopher who saw shadows on caves and then wrote about it, which is Plato and also an stupid description of what plato did and also plato wrote philosophy not stories so i just i I mean if anything the author should have been aristophanes and you know fuck all that fuck it but actually in a weird way you know what that made me think of what in season seven when they find out about the people who made the slayer and they look at the shadow play that's the first place i went oh see that's cool yeah anyway And then he says... He's been lots of people throughout time. Including a man named Walt. And we both screamed, literally screamed in agony when he said that. Even though we both already knew that. We knew that. We knew it was coming. And we just both involuntarily let out a howl of pain. It's... It was a really painful line. And it's... He's so smug and he like pauses and leads into it and he practically turns to the camera and winks. Did you know that this show was made by ABC, a Disney company? Also, he says that this author, the one that's imprisoned in the book, is evil. And the reason he's evil is because he started changing the story, which is interesting in the context of Walt Disney. Because that means that Walt Disney didn't change the stories. Like, we know he did. Disneyfied is a thing now. It's a thing that happens to fairy tales. They were one thing and then they get Disneyfied. If Walt Disney didn't evilly change the stories, that means that one day in the 1930s, everyone woke up and was like, you know what? Let's just be a little less bloody and sexual, okay? And then Walt Disney wrote down what he saw. Well, maybe he traveled to the less bloody and sexual worlds. Oh. Because... Okay, so his Snow White is not Mary Margaret. Yeah. Well, as we see in the... uh, As we see in the postscript season of Once Upon a Time, again, these stories are happening constantly in different worlds. So I guess he just traveled to a lighter... He traveled to a more family-friendly world? Yes. And then made movies out of it. 
it it doesn't hold up if you think about it at all. It's a winky thing to the fact that this is a Disney show about Disney stuff. I don't think it's just a winky thing. Like, it's not a throwaway thing. We are meant to think that Disney is magic. Anyway. Anyway, but uh, the latest author in the chain of authors was doing bad things by changing the stories as he saw fit. And, you know, as we said, he does understand what makes stories interesting. We go back to a flashback where we see the sorcerer and or sorcerer's apprentice confronting the author because the author made him do something really abominable. And he's like, yeah, it made a better story that way. Which is a really good concept and they should have played with it more. It's this show is kind of showing a little bit of its into the woods roots here. Maybe some of us don't like how you're telling the story. Yeah. Which would have been a much better... (sighs) What could be right now if we just pop in the DVD of the film of the stage show of Into the Woods. Not the movie. No. No. I... I mean, it was fine. Whatever. But no. I think the movie was a pretty solid interpretation. There are some things they changed that did not need to be changed. And there are some things that don't translate to film, like all of the Little Red Riding Hood stuff, which, by the way, is extra creepy in context of Johnny Depp. Mm. Oh, jeez, yeah. Yeah, Johnny Depp as the big bad wolf is just a little too on the nose. See, I, I think we've talked about this on the air before, but let's do it again just for funsies. I feel like I like the movie better than you do because my favorite storyline in Into the Woods is the baker and his wife, and that's definitely the strongest one in the movie. And my favorite storyline is Little Red Riding Hood, which is definitely the storyline that is worst served by the movie. Yeah. yeah. Which, God, James Corden was such a good choice for the baker. It's there, a... there are some good things in it. You know what? Let's watch that version, and then when we feel like we're still hungry, then we'll watch the good version. Oh, with Joanne Gleason and Bernadette Peters. Chip, what's his face? Oh, Bernadette Peters. Oh, God, pitch perfect. Talk about pitch perfect casting. Oh. Does she not do movie stuff? I feel like I've never seen her in a movie. Bernadette Peters does movies. What, what has she been in? I, you know, now that you say that, I, I'm not sure, but I know that I know her from film, not not stage. I actually got the chance to see her in uh, Gypsy when I was a kid, and it was like the coolest thing. We had a conversation about this before where I think, I, I think, where I told you that I saw her in Annie Get Your Gun. I also saw Annie Get Your Gun at one point. I know. Last time we had this conversation, you said you saw her in Annie Get Your Gun when you were a kid. And I was like, don't tell me how old you were when things happened. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I saw her in Annie Get Your Gun and it was awesome. And it was really funny, too, because um, my sister was friends with one of the little girls who was in Annie Get Your Gun. Mm-hmm. So she brought us backstage and I saw the wigs that they used for Bernadette Peters. And it was so weird that they had wigs that were basically her hair. God, she's amazing, though. God, the revival of Annie Get Your Gun fixed a lot of the problems with Annie Get Your Gun. I mean, at some point, you just can't do that on stage anymore. But the revival really did fix a lot of stuff. I feel like Kiss Me Kate needs a revival. Because I tried rewatching. someone uploaded a thing to YouTube, which is bad and wrong and shouldn't be done 
but I watched it. Sure. Because it was one of the first plays I saw. And one of the first musicals I saw on Broadway. Uh-huh. And I was like, I know it's an adaptation of The Taming of the Shrew, but it is massively too sexist still. My sister did a version of Kiss Me Kate that she tried to fix with staging and it worked pretty well. Yeah, and I, again, I feel like you can. It's just there's the gen... It, it's the same thing. The gender politics of My Fair Lady have not stood the test of time. Well, you know, Kiss Me Kate is not just based on Taming of the Shrew. It's also based on the... It's also based on the life of the actors who were portraying Kate and who were portraying, um, gosh, I don't remember the name of the... Dude? Yeah, I don't yeah. either. Yeah, but they were also, it was also based on their, their tumultuous, their tumultuous, uh, marriage. Yeah. And, yeah. My sister also tried to fix... Legally Blonde. I know she got rid of one of the more problematic aspects of that play. No, yeah, no, but no, she, no, my sister tried to fix Peter Pan when she did Peter Pan. Huh. Yeah, she changed a lot of stuff about Neverland and the Indians, trying to make it not so terrible. So back to the uh, show we're actually supposed to be talking about, uh... So we see... Basically, my sister's just like a super woke choreographer, and I'm really proud of her. So we see the author getting sucked into the book, although we conspicuously do not see his face. We just see this sorcerer slash sorcerer's apprentice sucking him into the book. Wait, but we know it's him because we we, we already know it's the peddler. No, no, they hold it off until the end of the episode. They conspicuously shoot that bit where he gets sucked into the book. So we don't see his face, even though we are going to see his face in like two minutes. But he's like sitting where the peddler was sitting and like, are we not supposed to know that's the peddler? Well, they play it. It's one of those things where they play it like a reveal, even though it's not because we can hear his voice and we can see his clothes. And he's also very clearly that dude. I didn't think they were trying to hide anything. If they are, that is, in fact, the most unrevealing reveal this show has yet done. I just, I don't understand why they wouldn't show his face unless it was supposed to be. Maybe they had to ADR a bunch of stuff because they messed up the, maybe they messed up the scene and they had to ADR a bunch of stuff. Well, they wouldn't know that when they were shooting it. Well, but maybe they only could use the shots that were from behind. I think that they were just trying to hide it so it could be a reveal to go out on. Well, that's weird. Because... Yeah, because they uh, free him from the book and they conspicuously hide his face until we see, it's the peddler from before. It's the peddler who, you know, sent them on the path to baby death pitsville. Yep. And he sees David and Mary Margaret and he whips out the brandy that David gave him so that he can like wave it in their face and make sure they know who he is. Yeah, and he says the same line about it being kind of not Maggie. And Mary Margaret's like, wait... You're one of the thousands of people we've met on the path that led us to throwing a baby into a death pit. Okay, I think he's more important to their story than you think he is. I think it's normal she would remember that guy. He's some dude that... He's not that important. He's some dude that gave them directions. He would... Re, they would remember the sorcerer's apprentice, slash possibly the sorcerer. Well, anyway. Anyway, he's, he's like, yeah, I'm not going to stay here and deal with you people. Bye. And he books it out of there. And Emma chases after him, but he's gone. <gasps> he can't teleport, by the way. 
So I'm a, and there's no way in hell that he could outrun uh, Emma. So I'm assuming he just ducked behind a car or something because he ran out into the street and then he's just gone. Yep. I don't know. Maybe we'll find out in the next episode, which we're going to watch right now. Although you dear listeners have to wait till next week. So segments. Yeah. Was there any stuff that was lifted directly from Disney this episode? I don't feel like there was. I think we're moving away from that now. Although I do think that Maleficent's dragon form looked more like the Disney version of the dragon form than it has before. I don't know if that had something to do with the CGI budget either being greater or lesser than, but or maybe it's just me, but it seemed more like the Disney dragon. I can see that. Uh, but other than that, I really feel like they didn't take a lot from uh, Disney. No, this was... Well... They're moving into the more original story territory now with the author. Yeah, the author is really once upon a time centric mythology. He's about to dark willow his way into being the true antagonist of this season. Yeah, especially. Oh God, he's dark willow here. Yeah, especially now that one third of the trio is gone. Yeah. Yeah. So, fashion. I mean. Maleficent is still kill- It's She's wearing variations on the same outfit. But it's giving me so many feelings, Max. I have so many feelings. It's a really good layered look. And the fact that she's wearing just different shades of the same color works surprisingly well. Yeah, yeah. I also would like to call out, Henry has a really excellent jacket in this episode. Uh, I don't know why that hit me. I guess it's because he's been wearing his school uniform a lot. I can see that. But, and Snow's still wearing her red jacket because I guess she's going through her evil phase now or whatever. Oh, I did notice that Emma was wearing a quilted red jacket that we haven't seen before. Probably a nod to the cold main weather. Hmm. Hmm. So that's it for this week. We yeah, kind of short on segments, but... We're finally on the other side of the baby death pit, so join us next week for the fallout to the baby death pit. Join us for the next several weeks for the fallout from the next from the baby death pit. This show is partially listener supported. If you would like to be one of those supporters, you can go to our website, ilovetelevisionzines.com, and click over to our Patreon. We would like to thank our $5 and above patrons, Beryl, Patricia, Cassidy, Alec, Alex, Alicia, and Ryan. Uh, if you'd like to support our podcast in other ways, you can always leave a rating or review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. If you'd like to talk about this episode, you should head over to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash I love television zines. You can also contact us on, uh, you can also contact us on Twitter at I love TV zines or email us at I love television zines at gmail.com. So until next time, I'm Tina. And I'm Max. And this is Welcome to Storybrooks. Sad, so yes, I still do bad things. But are they actually bad? No, because nothing is ever anyone's fault. We're all just products of childhood trauma. Nothing is ever anyone's fault. Pain causes anger and fear causes drama. We can't control the things we do just like I can't control that I'm in.